0: Thank you. So tonight we're going to be talking about Laos, or Laos, whichever way you pronounce it. Chairman Saoirse is going to be giving a very short discussion on the history of Laos as a country building socialism. And we're going to be talking about the period of the late 60s during the Vietnam War period when most of the changes began. Go ahead, Chairman Saoirse.
1: So I'm starting off in the book. Cash and Violence in Laos and Vietnam by Anna Louise Strong, Chapter Two, Land of the Laos. I'm starting off with a little bit of the history of Laos. Three nations emerged from the breakup of French Indochina in 1954, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. In the eyes of the West, they were new nations. For the French rule had blotted out their names and even jailed local patriots for singing an old song or flaunting a map showing an ancient country. But among the people, the memory endured of kingdoms that flourished long before the American continent was discovered. The oldest of these nations, Vietnam, recorded history before the Christian era and had a legendary tradition for more than 4,000 years. Even the youngest of these nations, Laos, was several times as old as the United States. All of these nations have characteristics in common, which they share with other neighboring states. Geographically, they're part of Southeast Asia, a term normally used to include Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, and Malaysia and often extended to the island empire of Indonesia further south. They all have tropical climates, humid, dominated by the southern ocean. They live by rice growing. Historically, they all lay on the sea route between cultures of antiquity. By climate and fertility, this area became one of the earliest dwelling places of man. The discovery of the Java or Ape Man, shows that even the predecessors of the human race lived there, and many relics of Stone Age cultures still remain. One notes the great stone jars, big as a man, and weighing a ton or more, which give its name to the Plain of Jars in Laos, where they lie scattered in deep grass. Archaeologists differ about their origin and use. Some call them burial jars, Others consider they were used for storing grain or wine for great nature worshiping festivals. And others note that the jars were struck amid a variety of musical tones, which are heard far away and which may have summoned leaders to ancient war councils. They point to a long Stone Age culture of some extent. Most of the population is believed to come originally from China, pushing south in prehistoric ages and also in historic times under pressure of conquest or population growth. An early incursion from China established the first Vietnamese kingdom around 300 B.C. The first revolt of the freedom-loving Vietnamese against foreign control was led in 39 A.D. by the two Trung sisters against the Han conquest. A temple in memory of these two national heroines still stands in Hanoi. Chow and Lai went there on his first visit to Vietnam to lay a wreath and symbol of the new China's view of the sisters' revolt. Operas and songs still made of their heroic resistance usually admit the last battle in which the sisters were defeated and after which they drowned themselves. An incursion from India, also before the Christian era, of the Kingdom of Funan, where Cambodia stands today. 1,200 years ago, it grew into the empire of the Khmer people, who produced the magnificent Angkor temples, still one of the architectural wonders of the world. The Lao and Thai people came later. They are one stock, formerly living in South China. They were pushed south by the Mongol conquest of Kublai Khan in the 13th century. They came in three migrations, one of which settled in Siam or Thailand, another Laos. While a smaller group drifted into North Vietnam as a minority nationality, the Lao and Thai peoples understood each other's language and can also talk readily with people in South China, but not with all the people in the land of Laos to which they come. In all these lands, there grew a feudal system in which rice-growing peasants tilled the lush bottomlands of the rivers and pushed still earlier aboriginal peoples into the hills to live on maize, dry rice, and sometimes on roots and bark. Petty kings and pettier nobles lorded it over the peasants and fought each other for lands and power. Religion came from India, first in the form of Hinduism and later as Buddhism. The prevailing religion today in Vietnam, Buddhism, Came via China mixed with Confucian and Taoist thought. And so from there, it will move into my own writing. That is describing the ancient history of Laos, where the Lao people came from. And that shows the deep, rich culture of the Lao people. They came from the Mongol hordes invading China, pushing them south into what became Indochina. And in 1893 became French Indochina under harsh colonial rule from the French which brought with them Catholicism and the French imperial system which harshly ruled them for 52 years. And during World War II they were ruled by the Japanese and they fought against the French with Ho Chi Minh and the Indochina Communist Party that he formed in the 1930s. In that, there was a Laos section, which was headed by Khe Son Vien, who I will speak on more later. So I was going to stop and ask if there are any questions on what I just read.
0: Thank you, comrade. The next part is going to be more modern Laos, from the part of World War II onward.
2: I'm actually really excited that we're studying this. It actually is another country <laughs> on our side, They won their war. It's very interesting. It was a war on the same scale as Vietnam, but it was completely secret, quote-unquote, because our country never officially declared war. And the Hmong army was funded by heroin. So I'm glad we're studying this. Thank you. Thank you. What material were the French in Laos
1: for? They were in Laos for basically the same reasons that they were in Vietnam and Cambodia, to expand their empire, because they didn't really get that big a piece of China. They wanted Indochina so that they could have their little slice of Asia as well. So they could get the rubber, they could get the spices, the produce, all that stuff, so that they could ship it back to France. Because France couldn't survive on their own without their colonial possessions. And yes, they do still have some influence there today. Not as much as they did. It's more of a mutual thing now because Laos has allowed foreign investment since the collapse of the Soviet Union out of necessity, not necessarily because they want to. Okay,
0: thank you. I'm going to add to that. President Eisenhower, one of the former presidents of the United States, wrote a book in the 50s, I think it was 54, called Mandate for Change. Mandate for Change. And in that book, he says quite openly, that the French were in Vietnam and Indochina because they wanted the tungsten, the rubber, and the manganese. That's what comes out of the book of Dwight Eisenhower. So he admits they're there for natural resources. I urge people to get the book, Mandate for Change, written by a capitalist president. Thank you.
2: You could also look at several The kingdoms of of Indochina, specifically those near Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand, were very well known for their trade across the Indochinese Ocean, especially with the Indian Empire at the Indonesians and the Chinese. The area that they were in, the area of Indochina, especially near Vietnam, is very important to shipping even today. Thank you.
3: That's true. Thank you. Those are very distant lands to Africa and my country as a whole. And I would like to find out before feudal expansionism from China, modern day Western imperialism of conquest of those countries. Are there any indications that those three countries had separate and distinct evolutionary process? I mean, to be formed as nation states, because now, right now, I think they are recognized members of the United Nations. So are there any indications that Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos had their own national evolution in history? And the second question I have is that what China did after the independence of Vietnam was in my opinion very shameful because they used the Khmer Rouge to undermine Vietnam after independence and also went to a full scale war against Vietnam. And China allied with the United States to go to war against Vietnam. And what do we say about that?
1: Laos played a big part in the third Indochina war with China and Vietnam. Laos was actually heavily involved with that. It's not as well known. The Khmer Rouge was in Laos as well. And I'm very critical of this actually. China was supporting Lao nationals who were fighting against the Pathet Lao at that time as well. So, yes, that's correct.
0: So my question is, so you mentioned something about the Indochina Communist Party. So my questions really are, how big was it, and was the Laos section that influential?
1: The Indochina Communist Party was huge. It covered communists in all of Indochina, including Malaya, Thailand, all those countries, Cambodia, Laos. Obviously, Vietnam. The Lao section was relatively large, from what I remember reading. It had about 200,000 members at its peak.
0: Wow. That's huge. Okay, thank you, comments. We're going to go back to the text. I want everyone to know Anna Louise Strong is a famous journalist, similar to John Reed in his day, who covered the Bolshevik Revolution. And she wrote on not only Korea, she wrote a pamphlet on Korea, which I urge people to get. And she also wrote on Indochina, but she also wrote on Poland, which is excellent. You should read her accounts of how they were building socialism in Poland right after World War II. And she wrote on the Baltic countries, how after World War II, They were building socialism. So I urge people to look up Anna Louise Strong and try to get as many books by her as possible. She also wrote a book on Stalin, by the way. Thick book on Stalin. And that book covers Khrushchev's 1956 denunciation. And I want people to know that she wrote on that issue also. Thank you. We're going to go back... Can we go now to the period of the defeat of the Japanese, and where do we go from there?
1: Also, the next part of the book that we will be going to, Chapter 4, but for now I'll be going to the defeat of the Japanese. After World War II, Ho Chi Minh declared Vietnam as an independent state, which sparked the first Indochina war. The Indochina Communist Party split and Khe Phomvihane and Prince Souphanouvong, who later became known as the Red Prince, joined what was known as the Lao Isarak, which was a nationalist, not anti-communist or pro-communist, but supported the Viet Minh group, uh, militant group, and they fought against the French. They had defeated the Japanese at this point, and they battled against the French. The French were defeated by 1953 and in 1953 a puppet state was formed in Laos called the Kingdom of Laos and in this there were three groups formed. There was the political group of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party which was a communist group that was headed by Kaysone Phomvihane. There was the neutralist group that was headed by one of the princes, and there was the royalist group that was headed by another one of the princes. And all of them had militarist groups that were fighting, which started a civil war in Laos. The Pathet Lao, the militant group of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party, was mostly stuck in the northern part of Laos on the border with Vietnam. They captured most of the rural areas up there and were largely stuck in the caves there. They did most of their strategic military planning in the caves in Laos. And this is where Khe Son Phong and Sufanavong met, and the Pathet Lao was officially formed in 1950. This area is what would later become the Ho Chi Minh Trail, in fact. And now I'll return to the text where we'll be talking about the Pathet Lao, where Anna Louise Strong actually interviews people from the Pathet Lao. And she talks about them in her article here. And it starts out uh, What is this Pathet Lao that Washington so seeks to destroy in all its forms, even at the cost of civil war in Laos for years? In the US Congress and the American press, it is called communist, or at least pro-communist, epithets loosely used in America. One's first surprise on meeting it is to find how little communist it seems. Its foreign policy is neutralism and friendship with all nations that wants to be friends. Its domestic program stands for elected governments and villages based on the equality of all nationalities and on equal women's rights. Its aim for Laos is expressed in honest government, the development of agriculture, industry, and commerce, public health, and schools. When in April 1961, I met Prince Sufanovong, the creator and chairman of the movement, I asked him, how can I most simply explain to Americans the meaning of Pothet Lao. The prince laughed and revealed a fact not generally known. The name was given to us by the French in the Geneva Convention of 1954. We marked our documents Pothet Lao or Land of Lao to distinguish them from the documents of Vietnam and Cambodia. The French began calling us Pothet Lao. We let the name stick. The official name of the movement was Neo-Lao Atsla, the Liberation Front of Laos. It was a combination of nationalities, classes, and organizations to fight for national independence from France. After independence was secured by the Geneva Agreement, the movement broadened into what is today called the Neo-Lao Hoksat or Patriotic Front. Its widened aim became to heal the wounds of war by a coalition government and build a prosperous Laos with democratic rights for all the people and equality for all nationalities. I shall use the term patriotic movement for the movement and "Pathet Lao for its armed forces since it is the name by which they are now widely known. The program of Patriotic Front was given in some detail in its election platform in the historic election of 1959, which the U.S. Congress deplored as a communist victory when the Patriotic Front and its allies won 13 out of 21 seats. Let us briefly note its three sections, political economy and culture. The political section demanded the consolidation of peace through a coalition government to guarantee the democratic freedoms of the people. Freedom of belief, of thought, of speech, writing, and publication, of domicile, of movement, of association, etc. Equality and mutual aid among the different nationalities so that all may go forward together. Equality and equal rights for men and women. The financial and economic section demanded an equitable tax policy regulation of exports and imports to prevent currency devaluation, a long-term economic construction plan for developing agriculture industry to build a genuinely independent economy. It also demanded respect for private property and the right of all persons to invest in and operate enterprises of construction and production. It seems a mild welfare program, milder than Roosevelt's New Deal. How mild and even primitive it was can best be seen from the culture and social program. It proposed to set up classes to gradually liquidate illiteracy, to set up primary and secondary schools and gradually universities, to restore and develop the mutual culture, to prohibit war propaganda and propaganda for splitting the nation and making strife among the nationalities. It proposed to develop departments of health to guide prevention and cure of disease, to organize social relief for the sick and needy. Stop and consider. Here is a country for centuries, a hotbed of tropical disease, which kill off the population. When the French left, there was just one educated native doctor in the nation. Now at last, a patriotic movement appears, which promotes in its platform the idea of public health and public schools. If you ask why anyone should fight such a mild welfare program, I refer you to the economic royalists who fought Roosevelt and to the men in the southern states of the USA who today fight integration. Clearly, the privileged feudal rulers like Von Bonhomme, and Nusavan will fight bitterly against equal rights for savages and slaves. If you then ask why America should back these anti-democratic forces, I leave you to think over that question. It is Washington's customary policy and we shall discuss it later in this book. Before I stop for questions, I'll just bring up what's brought up in this is similar to to what we do with MPD. This is a platform used as a transmission belt to bring people in. The Posit Lao itself was communist in all of its documents that were later revealed they were secretly communist openly in the public they were not they used this as a means to gain public support because they knew that being openly communist would prevent them from being able to do anything and despite this despite being very mildly social democrats the united states still started a civil war and tried to and successfully even murdered millions of people in Laos for these mild social democratic reforms that they were asking for, because the people asking for them were communists. You know, don't get me wrong, they were absolutely communists, despite what was in their program not being communist. This is very similar to what CPUSA did with some of the programs that they supported with the New Deal. This was a tactical program of theirs to help Laos. They were communists. And we can see that even with this seemingly liberal social democratic policy that they were pushing, that the United States was willing to murder them just for this. mean, with that, I'll open for questions.
0: A couple of things I jotted down. First of all, the mention of the word hook. It seemed to be that in that part of the world, Philippines, other parts. That word is a, is a liberation word. In Philippines, after World War II, there was an uprising led by the communists called the Huckabung, If I make a correct pronunciation, the Huckabung or the Huckabang. and they led the liberation movement there. They were put down by the U.S. just the way they did every other country. That's number one. Number two, the issue of respect for private property. That's not strange. What happened in many of the countries after World War II, whether they were in Asia or in Europe, is basically they set up what they call people's democracies. People's democracies were, if you remember, the work by Mao Zedong, he wrote a pamphlet by International right after forty-nine, the revolution, and it was called the New Democracy. So communists were using that word very differently, democracy, than the bourgeoisie were so the people's democracies were not socialist yet and they were building towards that so they had respect for private property and their definition of private property is different than the bourgeois definition okay by private property they do not do not mean where people employ the labor of other people to gain economic advantage for themselves that's not what they mean by private property they mean a place to live, they mean clothing, they mean things like that, a little bit of land, etc. They had that in Poland and in many countries. The other thing is in Vietnam, what happened, that was a war of national liberation. It happened in all Indochina, and Ho Chi Minh used as the first constitution, he copied it from the United States, not from the Soviet Union, but from the United States. The other thing is in 1954, there was a convention which put a piece on that in Vietnam. North Vietnam was set up as an independent republic, and South Vietnam was set up as a separate entity. That came out in 1954. They were supposed to have elections in Vietnam, and according to all the reports that Eisenhower gave, they would have won, including that book, Mandate for Change. Get that book. Eisenhower said that the communists were going to win that election. In 1954 which means Vietnam would have been unified without any war it was the U.S. economic interests let's not forget that the U.S. economic interests, because of the tungsten, and the steel and all the natural resources that they intervened so it was capitalist USA that intervened that's all I want to give some information on all of that I was wondering What precipitated the split in the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, if it was just simply different material conditions in the countries, or if there was an ideological difference there?
1: The split was intentional. It wasn't really a split in the sense that they weren't, like, getting along anymore or anything. It was so that they could all fight their own national liberation movements. They were still unified in the sense that they were all helping each other, they just formed their own separate groups to fight their own battles, so that they could have national self-determination. Because Ho Chi Minh kind of gave up on the idea of a unified socialist Indochina early on. He decided that it was a better idea to have independent states: an independent socialist Cambodia, Malaya, Vietnam, Laos, etc.
2: Thank you. I wanted to say that it's very interesting that Angela brought up Eisenhower too. I wanted to get a little bit into that because I'm listening to this whole thing and it just sounds to me a lot like what happened in Guatemala in 1953.
0: When uh, yeah. President when uh, yeah. so Juan
2: Jose Arvelo I think came to power, and the fruit companies, the banana companies, basically dominated the whole term of the Banana Republics. They completely dominated the country economically, and most of the population of the country was impoverished and working for scraps, basically. And so they had a democratic revolution, and Juan José Aravalo came in, and he was trying to institute things like universal suffrage and a minimum wage. And mind you, this wasn't even communism. This isn't communism, right? This is just basic, one would even argue, basic liberal things, social liberal, I guess, things. But anyway, he comes to power, he institutes these reforms, and the fruit companies, they don't like this. Specifically, one guy, his name was Samuel Zamuri, and he was in charge of COIML. And so he went to Eisenhower, and he told Eisenhower, hey, these people are basically like communists, you've got to do something about these guys. And the United States basically completely invaded the country, if I remember correctly
4: two things. The first, I want to say how Angelo, you mentioned there's a war of national liberation. I think we always have to go back to Lenin and the national question when it comes to this thing. One thing that was stressed to us, anyone who's read our Lenin and Stalin, is that national liberation must come before socialism can be built. That's correct. And until countries shake off the yoke of imperialism and foreign intervention, there's no possible way to build socialism and during this time another thing you mentioned this new democracy these democratic national movements national democratic movements were coming during a time when many of these countries in asia are semi-feudal still slash semi-colonial and they didn't have capitalist productive forces like many countries in the west did that are needed for socialist production so there was or respect a, a proletarian-led National Democratic Revolution. I think it's just important to make a distinction between Socialist Revolution and National Liberation Wars. And the clandestine nature of the Lao People's Party and later the Lao People's Revolutionary Party and the Pathet Lao as the front organization. And them wanting to put up, obviously what you described before as not wanting to be demonized for their communism. And I was just going to ask, I've read before that the Lao People's Revolutionary Party didn't even announce its existence until like the mid-70s. Is that true? And if it is, I'm assuming it's in relation with wanting to have that front organization as the primary
1: deal. Yeah, that's correct. They didn't even call themselves the Lao People's Revolutionary Party until 1975 when they achieved national liberation fully. They had declared themselves communist fully in the 60s, in the mid-60s. But for a while, they were just national liberation movement fighting against royalists and secretly fighting against the United States. They had their front organization, but they were just kind of like a social liberal, social democratic party that were trying to make things better with a communist military. That was fighting off in the countryside, capturing small little rural towns, trying to fight off the United States while the United States was growing opium and dropping hundreds of millions of bombs on them.
0: I want to add, after 1945, between 45 and 53, there's discussions going on in the international communist movement. And Comrade Stalin was still at the helm of the international movement at the time. So none of this happens without the consent, really, of Comrade Stalin. So just keep that in the back of your minds, that Comrade Stalin, as Lenin said before, a country has to go through, if it's a colonial country, it has to go through a war of national liberation. Keep that in mind, that we were a colony of England in the 1700s. And that's why communists look at 1776 as a war of national liberation. It was only the first war. We're waiting for the second revolutionary movement, which we call for, which is getting rid of capitalism and going to the next form of socialism. And that's what many countries did in the world after that period. Thank you.
1: I would add that after Stalin died, before Mao became kind of crazy and started fighting against them. Mao was actually sending a lot of help their way as well in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Before he decided to start fighting against them, Mao kind of took up the helm from Stalin trying to actually help these people. It did a great job. And sadly, after things, he lost power to the Gang of Four, and they started Having things go a little wacky in China, things are actually going good with China helping these people, and we even had Khrushchev and Brezhnev helping them quite a bit. Brezhnev, especially, did a lot to help Vietnam and Laos after Mao started fighting against them. Um, So we have to remember that as well. The next what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the Ho Chi Minh Trail and then I'm going to go into modern Laos, which is the area of Laos that most of us don't know anything about. And so I'll start with the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Because of the strategic position of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, Laos sadly had more bombs dropped on it than were dropped during the entirety of World War II. To this day, Laos is still dealing with the effects of the massive, at the time, covert bombing campaign by the US imperialists. 270 million bombs were dropped on Laos between 1964 and 1973 in the so-called Secret War. No country in history has been bombed as much previously or since. However, bombs were not the only thing dropped on Laos. To add insult to injury, the imperialists also dropped Agent Orange, which is a carcinogenic herbicide on Laos, which was also dropped on Vietnam, as many of you know. This has led to devastating lasting effects on Laos and Vietnam, including horrific birth defects and increased cancer rates. And these are both things that are still affecting Laos and Vietnam to this day. There are still Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of bombs
5: left unexploded
1: throughout Laos. They're still dealing with this. There are people, special units in the Laos military, who go around and they detonate or remove the unexploded bombs. There are people who are sent out to try and farm the countryside, and occasionally a child or somebody trying to till their land will accidentally run into one of these bombs and they'll lose a hand a leg both their legs their life because of what the United States did to Laos this is something that is still affecting them and it's absolutely terrible because they wanted national liberation because they wanted to break from the yoke of imperialism despite all of this despite the odds being against them. Laos did win their War of Independence, and they did their best to try and establish a socialist economy. They tried doing what they could, like Vietnam did, to establish a socialist model right from the get-go. Sadly, like in Vietnam, this didn't work. They didn't have the productive forces set up to do it. They tried through the 70s into the 80s to establish a socialist economy. And it failed miserably, absolutely miserably. It was, it was really sad. They tried collectivization. It just didn't work. There really wasn't much that they could do. They couldn't farm their land because of the bombs. Agent Orange was still affecting them. They couldn't grow anything because all of the crops were still dead. They're still trying to reforest the land because of deforestation effects because of Agent Orange and the bombing campaigns. They're still trying to fix the Plane of Jars because of the destruction caused due to the bombing. It took them years to even get the Plane of Jars to be declared as a world wonder. I'm sorry, I don't remember what the actual term is for that, comrades. Laos has suffered so much, and they had plenty of help from the socialist countries. But after the fall of the Soviet Union and the socialist countries in Eastern Europe, Things got even harder for them. They didn't have the support that they used to. They had a rocky relationship with China until the mid-'90s, so they were kind of on their own. And so in the late-'80s, they started a program called the New Economic Mechanism based on the new economic policy of Lenin to establish state capitalism so that they could build socialism after this. And they've been trying. As recently as their eighth five-year plan, which I've taken the time to read the 800 pages of, which is no easy task, I assure you, they have reassured their dedication to Marxism, Leninism, and the building of a socialist economy. And they've said that they're dealing with the many damages from the war and how hard it has been for them because of this. I just wanted to say that despite whatever criticisms we may have for how they're going about this, we should look at the fact that they have at least said that they are dedicated to Marxism-Leninism and that they are trying to build socialism, and that for Laos in particular, that it has been an uphill battle for them to build socialism. And it's easy for us to sit here and criticize them for not doing it the way that we might think that they should, but... It's really not easy for a country like Laos.
5: I just wanted to say, earlier, Comrade said that hundreds of millions of bombs were dropped in Indochina. And I just wanted to mention, that's not hyperbole. Five to seven million people were killed throughout this entire small Indochinese area. The Swedish government, actually, in 1972 decried it as literally being worse than the Holocaust. And they dispatched medics and doctors and nurses to help the North Vietnamese and the people in Indochina in their struggle when you would think that they would be supporting the U.S., but it was that horrible. That was sort of the thing that got me into thinking the way that we do here because I was in Holocaust and Vietnam war class in high school and I was wearing my JROTC uniform and I just started feeling like, crap, it kind of opened my eyes a bit.
1: It really was 120 million bombs. That was not hyperbole, it really was. 120 million bombs.
2: We talked about tonight how a nation needs to free itself before it have its own liberation, before it can build socialism and whatnot. But I've also heard people, like, for instance, we have, like, the Native Americans in our very own country. But I've also heard African Americans spoken of as sort of a colonized people. So what do you think their sort of liberation would look like? They don't have any region that's native to theirs in, in the U.S., so it doesn't seem exactly comparable for, with Native Americans to me, but so how are they colonized? What would their liberation look like in
3: the U.S., do you think?
2: That's a good question. We could tackle that in the future.
3: So I wanted to suggest that there is a book by Allison Ware, and that is Against Our Better Judgment, that talks about U.S. imperialism, influence in the Middle East on the issue of Palestine and Zionism and creation of Israel, and First World War, South Declaration, how U.S. influenced this whole thing excellent book with lots of lots of references. We need to learn about what has happened and what was the role of U.S. imperialism.
2: I'm very glad to see that we're talking about Laos because it's a country that I think a lot of us, even a lot of Marxist-Leninists, tend to usually ignore and sort of forget about. And so it's a very important country to remember, and most importantly to remember the historical role that America's played in Laos and what we've done to the Laotian people over the years.
0: It's really important that we as Western communists learn the history of Chinese movements in colonized regions and also the nature of the really world historic crime that was committed against the Indochinese peoples. I wanna say that it brought back a lot of memories for me because in the seventies when I was growing up would hear and I'd follow all the news that I could about Indochina and about the United States involvement in nineteen seventy five and of course the Laos was in the news a lot. But not enough. It was just sort of like sort of waylaid and just kind of forgotten, I think. But it's important to bring up that about the bombing and about our involvement and comparison the there with the bombing in World War II. Aside from that, I like to say that the books by Anna Louise Fung are actually magnificent, and that's all I have to say. Thank you.
1: One of the things that Laos has been doing to try and help themselves with development is they actually, and this is kind of funny because this is something that the United States doesn't have, they actually have been building a high-speed rail, and they have, which is something the United States doesn't have, they've got a high-speed rail now that connects them to China, which is going to allow them, it's connecting them to China, Cambodia, and Vietnam better, It's going to allow them to have workers come in and out, It's going to help grow their economy. They've built a bunch of hydroelectric dams, which allows them to export power, which is helping build their economy. And the more money that they're allowed to bring in, the more that they're going to be able to build up their economy industrialized, which is going to help them be able to build socialism quicker. Because they haven't even gotten a chance, which is sad in my opinion, because they started this in 1987. They haven't been able to even get to the capitalist stage of development yet are still working on that. So that's what I got for that.
2: I was wondering if you had any recommendations for information about, like,
1: the drug trade. I don't know if it's specifically in Laos or just, like, the Golden Triangle region of Southeast Asia. And... The drug problem in Laos, they've been working on that. It's a serious issue with Thailand. They've actually been working with Thailand to try and fix it. They've been doing a good job. They've confiscated a lot of drugs in recent years. Especially in 2019, they confiscated an awful lot of drugs. I could be wrong, but I think it's upwards of 500,000 tons of drugs that they've confiscated, especially pills. But it was a really, really serious problem for the last, like, 20, 30 years. It's getting better, but it's still a serious problem over there.
2: Basically, what's happened is the U.S. used to use Southeast Asia for drug running. However, mm-hmm. it's moved it to Afghanistan. Now that we control Afghanistan, we've moved it there.
5: After hearing about
0: just the sheer magnitude of the damage caused by the United States to Laos, it just gets me thinking about what the goal is of a communist in the country that does such things. I guess that's a different topic.
5: I have had the opportunity to visit Laos in 2014 while I was living and studying in China. And it's a beautiful country, amazing, rich history, and of course the scars of the war can be seen everywhere. Houses are made with some of the old shells. People still die from uh, about 80 million bombs, are unexploded ordnance in Laos to date. And I think it would be a very important thing for our party to do, to send delegations to some of these countries and to build links with their parties. I think that kind of international solidarity is crucial. And on our local level, our town is creating a sister town program. And one of the countries I'd like to sister with is Laos for us because they also have a big agricultural and farming economy. So we want uh, from our farm to their farm to link both countries and, of course, to apologize for the imperialist aggression and the continued imperialism of our country against Laos.
2: Great class tonight, Kersha. It just reminds me of when I went to Vietnam and went to Ho Chi Minh City, and there is a museum there called the War Remnants Museum. I don't know if anybody's been there, but it's really fantastic. You get to see a lot of really vivid photographs and history about what happened during the American portion of the war and all of the destruction that we caused, as well as the effects of Agent Orange and where that was dropped. It's crazy. Agent Orange was dropped everywhere, and it devastated the country. You can still see lots of people walking around that have birth defects that are very likely caused by Asian Orange. and That stuff, it really never goes away. It has to be heated to 10,000 degrees to destroy it. You can't do that to soil. Thank, Thank you.
1: you.
3: I wonder uh, if our party can contact the foreign publishing houses of those countries and request them to release uh, concrete information about the level of destruction in those countries to educate the American people and primarily the members of our party and tonight's presentation to educate us about the level of uh, barbaric aggression by united states imperialism okay
0: just want to mention one thing comic-con council for mutual economic assistance c-o-m-e-c-o-n it was the socialist alternative to the european common market It was set up on the Moscow River, and in 76 they were building it, I saw it. And Laos was a member of it, and so was Cuba, so was Vietnam. North Korea was even a member of it. The only one who was not a member was Albania and China. They were the only two socialist countries who were not members. And it was what the name says, Council for Mutual Economic Assistance. Communist countries, socialist countries traded among each other when that was destroyed in 1991 then they were forced to do different economic things that's all thank you hi right, thank you everyone thank Good you night.